Russia launches a new offensive against Ukraine, firing dozens of missiles at a number of cities as the first anniversary of the invasion draws near. It's Thursday, February 16th. This is WBMR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, the latest deadly shooting in America. One person was killed, three more hurt at a shopping mall in El Paso. Also this hour, warnings from the Congressional Budget Office about what could happen if the U.S. fails to raise the debt ceiling. Plus, researchers are learning about the range of medical problems caused by the forever chemicals known as PFAS. Because the absorption is so effective, but then the elimination is so poor, it builds up really fast. And remembering actress Raquel Welsh, who's died at the age of 82. In sports, the Celtics win, increasing clouds and warm today in the 60s. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Ten days after a major earthquake and powerful aftershocks hit southern Turkey and northern Syria, the Turkish government continues taking heat for its disaster response. The tremors have killed more than 39,000 people. NPR's Peter Kenyon has more on the most recent allegations. In a statement, the pro-Kurdish People's Democratic Party says President Recep Tayyip Erdogan's ruling coalition government is misusing its emergency powers by, quote, unlawfully taking over the distribution of humanitarian aid collected by others. The statement alleges the seizure of truckloads of tents, firewood and coal, and other aid. It accuses the government of, quote, destroying civilian networks of social solidarity and cooperation in an effort to, quote, monopolize all humanitarian aid in the hands of the government. Officials did not immediately respond to the allegations, but Erdogan is promising a rapid delivery of humanitarian aid and prompt reconstruction of destroyed buildings. Peter Kenyon, NPR News, Istanbul. There's conflicting information about the current safety of the air and water in East Palestine, Ohio. That is where a derailed train caught fire and released toxic fumes two weeks ago. NPR's Marie Andrusevich reports residents and elected officials are both demanding accountability from the railroad. At a town hall last night, hundreds of East Palestine residents asked questions and shared concerns about the ongoing health and financial issues caused by the train derailment. There was one key no-show, however, Norfolk Southern Railroad, the company responsible. In a statement, it said the reason was, quote, the growing physical threat to our employees. Governor Mike DeWine criticized the railroad for their absence. He joins other state and local officials in demanding accountability. We talked to someone, you know, who described their a yard being torn up and trees go down. The railroad needs to pay for that. We intend to hold the railroad accountable. Norfolk Southern says it has set up a $1 million fund to support the community. Marie Andrusevich, NPR News. There was a deadly shooting yesterday at a shopping mall in El Paso, Texas. One person was killed and three other people were injured. El Paso police say they have arrested two suspects. Mayor Oscar Leeser says an off-duty police officer was at the mall during the shooting and quickly apprehended one of the suspects. The off-duty police officer that was there, you know, did the job and the job that he's trained to do day in and day out. But also the surrounding areas and the units that responded were there within minutes was prepared to do their job also. The mayor says there is no further danger to the public. The shopping mall is close to an El Paso Walmart that was the scene of a mass shooting in 2019. A white supremacist gunman has admitted shooting and killing 23 people there. He'd said he wanted to target Latinos. This is NPR. 
From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Governor Maura Healy says she's trying to get new orange and red line cars on the T in service as soon as possible. The Chinese manufacturer putting the cars together in Springfield has been plagued by problems and delays. Healy told WBUR's Radio Boston that members of her administration are at the factory in Springfield to try and head off any problems. Our Secretary of Transportation was out there on the ground on Monday, and we are going to be all over this. Basically, right now, there are operational issues that need to be addressed, and problems are being corrected as they occur. Because of the problems with the manufacturer, all of the Orange Line trains aren't expected to be in service until at least next year. All the new Red Line cars will take even longer. After a seven-month search, it looks like UMass Amherst will soon have its new leader. The head of the UMass system is recommending Javier Reyes to become the school's next chancellor. Jill Kaufman reports the school's board of trustees will take its vote today. UMass President Marty Meehan says Reyes is an innovative leader who inspires students and supports the teaching and research talents of faculty. Reyes is 49 years old, and he would be the first Latino to lead the Amherst campus. He was born in Mexico and currently serves as interim chancellor of the University of Illinois Chicago. On campus Monday, he told students he hadn't applied to other positions. Being the chancellor at UMass Amherst is a unique opportunity. Reyes said, quote, When you're looking for impactful, transformative universities that are solving and addressing the biggest challenges that we face, he said UMass in particular has played that role. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Jill Kaufman. Cambridge-based Moderna says it will keep its COVID vaccine free for uninsured people. People with insurance will also be able to get a free shot through their insurance plans. The announcement comes after Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders called on Moderna's CEO to testify about a potential price hike. Moderna was considering raising the price of the vaccine to more than $100 per dose. Boston's Sci-Fi Film Festival is now underway. More than 100 films will be shown at the Somerville Theater as well as online. Festival director Garen Daly says the event will close on Monday with a 24-hour marathon of cult classics and some films he calls really bad. Think about it as being in your living room and you're seeing something bad and you start yelling at the screen or complaining about the screen. We do that with five or 600 people and it becomes a community event and we enjoy it as such because that way we can have fun. The festival also includes workshops with film editors of franchises like the Star Wars and Indiana Jones series. It's 706. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by ThoughtForms, custom builders of high-performance, healthy homes and places that strengthen our communities, supporting Climate Interactive's mission to help people everywhere create a sustainable and equitable future with their online climate solutions simulator, climateinteractive.org and thoughtforms-corp.com. The Celtics beat the Pistons 127-109 to last night at the Garden. The Seas are now off until next week for the NBA All-Star break. Tonight, the Bruins and predators will skate in Nashville. Clouds increasing throughout the day today. It's going to be warm with a high in the lower 60s. Rain moves in around sunset and showers are likely overnight. The low will be in the 40s. Rain through a good part of the day tomorrow. It'll be in the 60s again. It'll be dry but cooler for the weekend. It's 54 degrees in Boston at 707. WBUR supporters include the estate of Joan B. Crock, 
whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR produce programming that meets the highest standards of public service in journalism and cultural expression. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. Good morning, I'm Asma Khalid. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Russian forces have begun an offensive in Ukraine. Tens of thousands of new troops are forcing Ukrainian soldiers to pull back. This Russian attack comes near the one-year anniversary of the invasion. Ukraine's American allies expect to see more fighting in the weeks ahead. General Mark Milley spoke with our colleague Leila Fadel this week. Now as we get into the spring, as the thaw comes here and probably a few more weeks, uh, you're looking at the March-April time frame, you are likely to see more movement, more offensive operations. So I do think this is a critical moment. That interview is part of an upcoming NPR special on the war's first year. NPR's Tom Bowman, our Pentagon correspondent, is here to talk about the second year. Tom, good morning. Good morning, Steve. What are the Russians really doing? Well, it seems the Russians have started their counteroffensive, and what they want to do is gain even more ground in the eastern part of the country, in the Donbas with the first year anniversary coming next week. A lot more troops are heading in, and the sense is more towns in the east will fall to the Russian forces who, again, are trying to make gains. Russia is taking huge amounts of casualties, and they've lost a lot of tanks and armor. But again, tens of thousands of Russian troops flowing in. And Steve, there's a saying that quantity has a quality all its own, and that comes from a former Soviet leader named Joseph Stalin. Tom, Ukrainian officials began 2023 talking about moving the other way, as did their American supporters, talking about a Ukrainian offensive or counteroffensive to take even more territory back from the Russians. What happened to that? Well, we're likely to see it, and as uh, General Milley said, probably sometime in the spring, uh, maybe April or even into May when the ground dries out, and also when they get their tanks and armor and better trained troops. Ukrainian troops are training in England in small units, and larger units are doing training at U.S. training facilities in Germany. They want to make sure they have, again, all the armor and the trained troops before they mount this counteroffensive. I want to call attention to something General Milley said. He said this is a critical moment, but people are always saying that various moments in this war are critical moments. What about this particular set of offensives and counteroffensives would be critical? Well, I think it's critical for the Ukrainians. They have to show NATO and the U.S. that they can actually achieve something. Can they push the Russians back in the eastern part of the country? Or can they, as some say, will likely head south and split that Russian land bridge that goes from Russia to Crimea? The sense is they may push into Melitopol on the Sea of Azov. That would prevent the Russians from supplying their forces in Crimea, because the only other way in by land is that bridge that you remember the Ukrainians partially destroyed a while back. But what can the Ukrainians achieve? Now, they say they want to push all the Russians out of the entire country. General Milley and others have said, you're not going to be able to do that. And also, the Russians wanted to take the entire country. General Milley said they can't do that either. So what can they do? U.S. officials have said again and again they will support Ukraine for as long as it takes. But let me interrogate that a little bit. Is there something of a time pressure here for the Ukrainians that they know that their support from the international community maybe can't go forever? I think that's probably right. If they can't achieve much, you may start to see some European countries start to say, we can't keep this thing going forever. The United States may say, we're with you right to the end. But you might see some of those European countries, because of the cost of this, saying, you know what, 
it's really time to sit down at a negotiating table. NPR's Tom Bowman, thanks so much. You're welcome, Steve. At least one person is dead and three others are injured after a shooting at a shopping mall in El Paso, Texas. It took place just down the road where a gunman killed 23 people at a Walmart in 2019. Police have detained two suspects and are investigating a potential motive in this latest shooting, which comes only days after a gunman killed three people at Michigan State University. All this gun violence is again leading to calls to do something. We're joined now by Olivia Troy. She's a member of a gun safety advocacy group called 97%, and she served as Homeland Security and Counterterrorism Advisor to former Vice President Mike Pence. Good morning, Olivia. Good morning. So I've got to begin by asking you a personal question. I I know you're from El Paso, and in fact, you mentioned on Twitter yesterday that your aunt was at the shopping mall complex during the shooting yesterday, and she survived the 2019 Walmart shooting. Uh, How is she doing? Yeah, it's been a really hard 24 hours. I, um, she's doing okay. She's obviously shaken. I am just uh, so impressed by her resilience and strength. She, uh, she obviously, you know, is I think experiencing the aftermath of the trauma, uh, having been through both of these shootings in El Paso now. Um, And I am just so grateful, we all are, that it was strangers who have helped her each and every time. She hid in the back, uh, one of the people that she goes to, she's a regular at one of the little cafes there in the mall, pulled her into the back kitchen. The um, the lady at that cafe was incredibly um, action oriented and mm-hmm. closed the gate, turned the lights off, and hit everyone in their back kitchen. Oh wow! So the gun safety and advocacy group that you are a part of, ninety seven percent, it says its mission is to reduce gun deaths in the country. Can you give me some specifics on what you all are doing to achieve that? Yeah, sure. Um, our goal is basically to create research backed. Uh, research-backed package of policies. We work by bringing together non-gun owners and gun owners, which we think is a more holistic approach and really inviting people into the conversation and working holistically together to find a better path forward. Um, We believe in, you know, making sure violent criminals can't access guns. Uh, We believe, you know, violent misdemeanor crimes as, as should be the threshold for exclusion for gun purchases. Um, We believe in gun permit laws at the state level in conjunction with background checks. Um, And we obviously believe in red flag laws at the state level. This is based on um, conversations and research uh, with with people who are, you know, our Second Amendment supporters, um, gun enthusiasts. Um, We're a group that has brought together Republicans and Democrats, former members of Congress, current members of Congress, uh, former national security people like myself. And... We also have two NRA, former NRA lobbyists on our board. I want to ask you about one idea that President Biden has been reiterating quite a bit lately. Uh, He called even in his State of the Union address for a ban on assault weapons. Do you think that that's something that would help improve the situation around gun violence? I mean, surely reducing the number of guns that we have in our streets in the United States, I think, would be uh, an important step. But the reality is, is that we don't we don't see that uh, happening. Uh, like politically, you don't soon. see it happening. Politically, see yes. Politically, we just don't see the threshold for that. And also, the reality is, is that I think gun owners are don't really agree with that being the necessary approach when there are so many other measures uh, that we could be taken to reduce gun violence. 
So uh, we have about 30 seconds left. I I guess I want to understand, I mean, given that so many people want to see something change, why are we still not seeing uh, sort of substantial change on this front? I think we need leadership. I think we need uh, elected leaders to act on this. Uh, And quite frankly, it needs to come mostly from the Republican side. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, I think Senator Cornyn in Texas, which is where I'm from and El Paso is, uh, took the right first step after the horrible and tragic Uvalde shooting in Texas. Olivia, we've got to leave it there. But thank you very much for taking the time. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Olivia Troy served as Homeland Security and Counterterrorism Advisor to former Vice President Mike Pence. Relatives of the famed Chilean poet Pablo Neruda say their suspicions of half a century are confirmed. Did you know this? They've long accused state agents of poisoning the poet after a U.S.-backed coup in Chile back in 1973. Now forensic scientists have delivered findings to officials that do show a toxin in his remains. Here's NPR's Kerry Kahn. For the past five decades, the official story is that days after the coup, Pablo Neruda died in a Santiago hospital due to complications from prostate cancer. No one ever believed that lie, says Rodolfo Reyes, Neruda's nephew. He was injected with a bacteria that caused his death, Reyes told NPR. Reyes is a lawyer and has seen the report that was delivered to the court. Scientists from Canada, Denmark, and Chile reported they found large quantities of the bacterium that can cause botulism poisoning in bone and tooth samples from Neruda's exhumed body. Me gustas cuando callas. Perhaps the 20th century's most read poet, Neruda won the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1971. He wrote epic poems about love, like his famous 20 on the topic. Here he is heard reading number 15. He was also a Chilean diplomat and staunch supporter of President Salvador Allende, a socialist who was deposed by the military with help from the U.S. in 1973. Reyes says there is no doubt that dictator Augusto Pinochet, who went on to rule Chile for the next two decades, killed his uncle. He or his agents were the only ones at the time capable of such a murder, says Reyes. Canada's McMaster University said scientists there did detect the toxin, but couldn't conclude if it killed Neruda. However, they say the same bacterium was used to kill political prisoners in Chile in the 1980s. Chilean judge Paulo Plaza says the court must decide now how to proceed. For now, she says, they are studying the findings. Relatives of Neruda want a criminal investigation opened. Reyes says Neruda himself has spoken. The science today tells us that, yes, he was murdered. Carrie Kahn, NPR News.
This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, as part of this week's in-depth series on forever chemicals, WBUR health reporter Gabriela Emanuel looks at what PFAS do to human bodies. It's 7:19. After months of protests, Iran's government has tamped down most demonstrations. It's hard, and our government won't go easily, but we will replace them. I'm Mary Louise Kelly with reporting from Iran, where anger and desperation persist. That's on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today, starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Increasing clouds today with a high near 64. The National Weather Service says temperatures in both Boston and Providence will probably surpass their record highs of 60 degrees set in 1910. Cloudy tonight with a low around 48. There's a chance of rain in the late evening. Showers likely Friday morning into the early afternoon, then cloudy with a high near 62. Right now it's 54 degrees in Boston at 720. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Circle Furniture. Over 70 years of artisanal craftsmanship rooted in community and sustainability. Seven locations across Mass and New Hampshire. CircleFurniture.com. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. PFAS are manufactured chemicals used in lots of everyday products. Everything from food packaging to outdoor gear and hand lotions. The best studied of them are linked to a long and growing list of medical concerns. Including cancer, liver damage, obesity, risk of diabetes, cardiovascular disease. They can adversely affect almost all of our organs. As part of our reporting on PFAS, WBUR's Gabriela Emanuel takes us on a trip inside the body to understand what these chemicals do. Boxes line the front hall of Wendy Thomas's house in Merrimack, New Hampshire, just a bit north of the Massachusetts border. We get stacks of this. It's, it's almost up to my chest. Inside each box, jugs of water. Thomas uses it to cook and drink. That's because her well water is contaminated with PFAS. When PFAS is in your water, you can't see it, you can't smell it, you can't taste it. Thomas lives near an area that's been polluted by a factory that makes special fabrics with chemical coatings. After hearing about it at a local meeting, she had her well tested. And then her blood. Almost all Americans have PFAS in their blood. So Thomas thought she was prepared for the results. But she wasn't. The only word I can come up with is gobsmacked, but I'm sure there's a better word. Um, Numb, uh, raw. She says her blood levels are higher than 99% of Americans. Thomas began to advocate for better PFAS regulations, even becoming a state representative. But soon her family started falling ill. All six of her adult children are dealing with health issues, like autoimmune conditions, high cholesterol, and weight challenges. And Thomas was diagnosed with breast cancer, despite no family history of it. It's not clear what, if any, role PFAS played. St. Gobain, the company that runs the factory, has not admitted to contaminating the Thomas's well. But it does provide her with those jugs of water. I don't know if this is all related to PFAS, but it's, it's, you know, it's beginning to look like a duck and it's beginning to quack like a duck. Scientists are worried about people like Thomas who have been exposed to lots of PFAS. But they say even small amounts could be problematic. These experts are learning more about what's happening once PFAS gets into the body. The first step they know. Imagine taking a gulp of PFAS-laden water. Those chemicals go from your stomach to your intestine. And in the small intestine, they'll basically be completely absorbed 
into the body. Angela Slit studies PFAS at the University of Rhode Island's College of Pharmacy. She says once the chemicals get inside, they are like obnoxious house guests. And they have three main calling cards. First, they overstay their welcome. That's because all PFAS contain chemical bonds that are super strong and stable. That's good if you're making a consumer product, but she says it means these visitors are hard to get rid of. They are just virtually indestructible. So, you know, it takes high, high temperatures to break down the carbon fluorine bonds. And a problem is that the body doesn't break them down either. That's where they get the nickname forever chemicals. So substances like caffeine, Tylenol, and the plastics chemical BPA, they leave the body in a matter of hours. Lead leaves the blood in a month or so. For the most prevalent types of PFAS, we're talking years. And in rodent studies, Slit says, Because the absorption is so effective, but then the elimination is so poor, it builds up really fast. That brings us to the second calling card, PFAS spread out. Megan Romano is an epidemiologist at Dartmouth School of Medicine. She says PFAS get into the blood. What that means is it's a really excellent delivery system to get all sorts of places in our body. That's different from many other toxins that influence just one system or organ. Romano says PFAS can mess with a lot of body functions. One way they do this is by appearing to be something they're not. That's the third calling card. On a molecular level, PFAS can click into certain receptors in the cell. Essentially, PFAS looks enough like fatty acid that it fools these nuclear receptors into thinking that it knows the secret handshake and that's how it gets in the door. Romano says with this trick, PFAS can interfere with hormones and studies suggest they have the potential to alter how our bodies store and use fat. Those are just some of the harmful effects scientists are discovering. And so far, there's no good way to evict this unwanted guest. Philippe Grandjean of Harvard's School of Public Health says a parent can foist PFAS onto the next generation through the placenta or nursing. Let's say she uh, breastfeeds for six months. Uh, she can actually eliminate half of her body burden uh, to the child. You can also get PFAS out by menstruating or giving blood. Scientists still have a lot of questions. There are thousands of different PFAS chemicals, and most haven't been studied. Chemical manufacturers cast doubt on the research that has been done. Some politicians are working to outlaw these chemicals in many consumer products. A bill to do that was recently filed in Massachusetts. The lawmakers say they don't want to add more PFAS to our environment or let them into our bodies. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Gabriella Emanuel. Our PFAS reporting continues tomorrow morning. We'll ask the experts how you can reduce your exposure to forever chemicals. And you can see how cities and towns are addressing PFAS and drinking water at WBUR.org. Hundreds of thousands of people crowded Kansas City for a victory parade celebrating their city's Super Bowl win. Of course, Frank Morris of our member station KCUR attended. After walking much of the parade route, high-fiving fans, Kansas City's quarterback, Patrick Mahomes, got on stage. About as humble as a liquored-up Super Bowl MVP in an enormous, bejeweled, professional wrestling-style belt can be. We're world champs! 
I just want to say we appreciate everybody here today. Arrowhead Stadium is one of a one of a kind, and we just want to say Chiefs Kingdom is one of a kind. So give a round of applause for everybody that's standing here today. Of course, that love goes both ways. Teenagers Ashlyn Vaughn and Sammy Vinzanti managed to touch Mahomes during the parade. Elizabeth Adams, longtime fan, says she loves seeing the city coalesce around its football team. The Chiefs last won the Super Bowl in 2020, right before the pandemic shut everything down. It's nice to finally be together. We're finally coming back together as a city and as people. And for one thing, it doesn't matter your race, religion, views of anything. We're all here to come together as a family, as a Chiefs family, as Chiefs kingdom, all together. Adams is from Leavenworth, Kansas, near Kansas City. George Perry drove in from tiny Slater, Missouri, two hours away. A great thing, man. Great time. Good people. Good city. Great football team. A great team built around the talents of pro football's most valuable player. Patrick Mahomes is our Superman. And we're the kryptonite for the rest of the NFL. <laughs> <laughs> Willie Wright looks a bit like a superhero himself dressed head-to-toe in matching Chiefs apparel. He says the second recent Super Bowl win feels better than the first, because now the team's on the road to being a dynasty. For NPR News, I'm Frank Morris in Kansas City. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up here on Morning Edition, the Congressional Budget Office is issuing dire warnings about what may happen if the debt ceiling isn't raised soon. It's 729. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Sony Pictures Classics presenting Living, a new film directed by Oliver Hermanis. Starring Bill Nye as a man who tries to turn his ordinary life into something wonderful. Now playing select cities. And from EBSCO, committed to providing researchers with reliable, relevant online research databases, including Academic Search Ultimate and Business Source Ultimate. More at ebsco.com. And from Keeper, a secure password manager designed to protect with strong encryption against account takeover, ransomware, and cyber theft. Used by millions globally. Learn more at KeeperNPR.com. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky says his country was hit by another wave of Russian airstrikes today. He's heard here through an interpreter addressing Norway's parliament by video. We still managed to take down half of the missiles, and we're doing our best to ensure that 100 percent of Russian terror would fail. Ukraine says today's airstrikes caused no major disruptions to the national power grid. In East Lansing, Michigan. Thousands of people gathered on the campus of Michigan State University last night to remember three students killed in a shooting on Monday. A gunman opened fire inside an academic building and later at the student union. Five other students were critically injured. Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer was among those who spoke at the vigil. We know that we will keep working to keep you safe and we won't stop until the job is done. And we know there is much goodness and light 
in this community, and it outshines the darkness. Police say the 43-year-old gunman took his own life about five miles off campus. Police say they're still looking for a possible motive for the attack. Dow futures are down 39 points. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. The city of Cambridge says it's fast-tracking plans to implement body cameras for its police officers. The city first discussed the topic in 2020. The renewed effort follows the fatal shooting of 20-year-old Arif Saeed Faisal by Cambridge Police last month. The city says it will also hire an independent consultant to review other training policies and practices within its police department. The city of Northampton will take up a vote tonight on whether to establish a reparations commission. The commission would study the city's history of, quote, racialized harms against its black community and recommend ways to address them. Northampton City Councilor-at-Large Jamila Gore is a co-sponsor of the proposal. She says she didn't expect the response it's received from residents. I was expecting more of a backlash from the public, but I'm glad that most of the public that I've heard from have been overwhelmingly positive about it. Some people saying that it's long overdue. That was surprising and really heartwarming. If passed, Northampton would join Massachusetts communities, including Boston, Cambridge, and Amherst, in taking similar actions. Massachusetts casinos took in over half a million dollars on the first day of legal in-person sports betting. The Gaming Commission says that means nearly $10,000 in tax revenue for the state. Online sports betting is expected to launch early next month. It's 7.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com, member FDIC. The Celtics ended the first half of their season on a positive note. They beat the Pistons 127-109 to at the Garden. The season are now off for a week for the NBA All-Star break. The Bruins are on the road tonight to play the Nashville Predators. Clouds will move in throughout the day today as temperatures rise to a high in the mid-60s. Tonight we fall back into the 40s under cloudy skies that may give way to rain in the late evening. Friday starts with showers, then it'll be cloudy with a high in the low 60s. Right now it's 55 degrees in Boston at 734. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from the Lemelson Foundation, dedicated to inspiring and enabling the next generation of inventors to improve lives around the world. More information is available at lemelson.org. And from the Charles Stewart Mott Foundation, supporting efforts to promote a just, equitable, and sustainable society in its hometown of Flint and communities around the world. More at mott.org. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Asma Khalid. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. There's this old saying that there are three kinds of lies. Lies, damn lies, and statistics. Possibly with this warning in mind, Congress staffs a nonpartisan budget office whose job is to come up with budget numbers that are credible. And the CBO has some thoughts about the federal debt and borrowing in years to come. First, this country is on track to borrow a lot more than it already has. And second... We're growing closer to default because House Republicans have so far declined to pay the bills. David Wessel joins us next. He directs the Hutchins Center at the Brookings Institution. Welcome back, sir. 
Good morning. Okay, so first, if if present trends continue, if we keep taxing and spending at the amount that we are, how much is the country on track to borrow? So the Congressional Budget Office says over the next decade, the government will spend $20 trillion more than it takes in in taxes. Hmm. And the thing that's uh, a little bit frightening is that that's 20% more borrowing than they predicted last May uh, when they did their last report. And there are two reasons for this. One is Congress passed a lot of big-ticket spending bills last year. And second, CBO expects the overall economy to do worse than it had anticipated and interest rates to be higher. And those interest rates are a big factor. The interest tab on the federal debt soars as the government borrows more and interest rates go up. I guess we should underline the danger here. We have found out in the last few years that the federal government can borrow a lot more than anybody maybe thought they could without any particular damage to the economy. But there's some point at which it becomes hard to, to make, the, make the monthly payments. Is that the deal? Yeah. The thing is, we don't know how much the government can borrow before it runs into trouble. The debt has risen from about 35% of the GDP, the overall size of the economy, um, which before the global financial crisis, it was 80% of GDP before the COVID pandemic. And because of all the pandemic spending, it's about 100% of GDP today. Mm. And that's levels we haven't seen since World War II. Now, there's some people who predicted at this level, we would surely have had a financial crisis or an economic calamity, but we haven't. The U.S. Treasury hasn't had any significant trouble borrowing that money. And interest rates on 10-year Treasury debt, though higher than they were a year ago, are still low by historical standards. So there's no sign now that government borrowing is causing a problem. Uh, but CBO projects that we're on track to raise the federal debt to 195% of GDP over the next 30 years. That's really a lot. And although there's a lot of uncertainty about the numbers, the government clearly is on an unsustainable course. The debt can't grow faster than the economy forever. So at some point, Congress is going to have to do something about taxes and spending. Well, let's talk that through, because we're in the middle of this uh, debt ceiling debate once again, where House Republicans are saying they will not pay the country's bills unless they get a negotiation over spending. Uh, and there's a limited amount of time, according to the CBO. We've got a few months to straighten this out, or the United States is not going to be able to pay its bills. But in the meantime... This is what seems to be on the table. Republicans are saying we want to drastically bring down the deficit, but also saying we don't want to touch popular programs like Social Security and Medicare. Is it possible to do both of those things? Uh, I don't think so, not without a lot of tax increases. What the CBO report says that outlays for Social Security and Medicare are going to grow a lot over the next decade because we have a lot more old people and healthcare spending is rising rapidly. Everything else is going to be a smaller share of the budget. So it's really hard to reach budget nirvana without doing something on the tax or spending side on Social Security or Medicare. Budget nirvana. That's what you guys study over there at the Hutchins Center. Absolutely. To... We're in favor of it. <laughs> That's good, David. It's a pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much. You're welcome. David Wessel at the Brookings Institution. Raquel Welch has died at 82. As NPR's Chloe Veltman tells us, the movie and TV star worked hard over her long career to move beyond being pigeonholed as a sex symbol. Raquel Welch's appearance in the 1966 sci-fi adventure Fantastic Voyage in a skin-tight white bodysuit certainly got moviegoers' attention. Open it! Open it before they get here! I can't till the hatch is flooded. But it was the film One Million Years B.C., made that same year, that sealed the actress's reputation as an international sex symbol. 
See her as Loana the Fair One, who deserted her tribe and risked her life to follow Tumak of the Rock People. There was a poster for one million years BC where she was in a, I guess you'd call it a fur bikini, and she's standing there looking fierce. That's NPR movie critic Bob Mondello. He says Welch wasn't required to act very much in her early movies. It was all about her visual appeal. And she rode that to enormous fame. Over a career spanning more than 50 years, the actress worked hard to eschew the bombshell stereotype. Mondello says she was brilliant at comedy. She knew she had comic chops and she wanted to show those off. And so when she got cast in The Three Musketeers, she was very funny. Officer, you must help me. You are young and gallant and my husband is just a weak man, troubled with wind. Welch won a Golden Globe Award for her performance in that film in 1974. One of her most hilarious roles was playing a heightened version of herself on the hit show Seinfeld. No. No, I told you I don't want to do that. If you bring it up again, I'll feed your genitals to a wolf. Raquel Welch was born Joe Raquel Tejada in Chicago, Illinois, to a Bolivian father and an American mother. She didn't discuss her Latina heritage during her early career. Film critic and Entertainment Weekly editor Yolanda Machado says the actress had to hide her identity to succeed. And despite what a heavy weight that may have been to conceal, she triumphed in memorable performances that stand as a portal into an entire generation. But the actress eventually embraced her roots in public. Starting in the early aughts, Welch began to speak openly about her background in interviews. And she played Latina roles like Aunt Dora in the PBS show American Family, about a Latino family in Los Angeles. Jess, this is wheatgrass, okay? You squeeze the grass for the juice, and then you drink it for strength and vitality. You're drinking grass. It's really quite delicious. TV writer and political cartoonist Lalo Alcaraz says Welch's Latina identity came as a surprise to many, including himself. Like many young men of his generation, he says he originally just ogled her up there on screen. I just was like, wow, look at Raquel Welch. (laughs) She's, She's beautiful. Learning about the actress's Latina heritage eventually turned him into a mega fan. We don't have that many stars, so Raquel Welch is viewed as one of our stars, and I'm, I'm happy and proud about that. Alcaraz says one of his personal highlights was getting his picture taken with Welch at the rap party for American Family. He was there as a friend of the director's. I brought a disposable camera, you know, those little yellow uh, ones, with the express purpose of getting a photo with Raquel Welch. When the news broke about Raquel Welch's death, he posted that photo on social media. Alcaraz says the star was very gracious and he was very giddy. Chloe Veltman, NPR News. This is NPR News. Coming up next on Morning Edition, a Senate committee seemed unsatisfied yesterday after grilling the acting head of the FAA on safety lapses, including near misses on runways. And in our next hour, some scientists are trying a different approach as they hunt for new viruses. Increasing clouds today with a high near 64. The National Weather Service says temperatures in both Boston and Providence will probably surpass their record highs of 60 degrees set in 19. 19- 
10. National Weather Service meteorologist Rob Magnia says the weather has been unseasonably warm this winter, but he's not alarmed. He adds winter may not be over yet. Uh, the winters are pretty long in, in the Northeast, so you know you, you still can't rule out uh, another opportunity for for a big snowstorm in March or maybe even in early April. You know it's been known to happen. Cloudy tonight with a low around 48. There's a chance of rain in the late evening. Showers likely Friday morning into the early afternoon. Then cloudy with a high near 62. Right now it's 55 degrees in Boston at 7:43. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Vertex committed to making a difference in biotech to create and deliver innovative therapies for people with serious diseases. Career opportunities at vrtx.com. Now in business news, Boston-based Fidelity Investments says it plans to hire 4,000 new workers by this summer. More than 1,000 of those jobs will be in Massachusetts, New Hampshire, and Rhode Island. The financial services giant says the openings include roles in IT, customer service, and sales. The Boston Planning and Development Agency is set to vote today on a proposal to redevelop a long vacant warehouse in Alston. The site is along the Mass Pike across from Boston Landing. Boston-based Berkeley Investments says it wants to turn the area into a three-building development that would include labs and apartments as well as restaurants and retail space. Renowned local chef Lydia Shire is planning to open a new restaurant on the Boston waterfront. Shire is the chef and owner of the Italian restaurant Scampo inside the Liberty Hotel. The James Beard Award winner says the new restaurant will be on the ground floor of the Seaport Science Center. Shire says she plans to open it next year. It's 745. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Hiscox committed to helping small businesses protect their dreams. Quotes and information on customized insurance for specific risks are available at Hiscox.com. Hiscox, business insurance experts. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Vicks DayQuil Severe, a daytime cold and flu medication designed to relieve up to nine cold and flu symptoms. More at Vicks.com. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station, it's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Asma Khalid. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. Lawmakers in Congress questioned the acting head of the Federal Aviation Administration about recent safety lapses, including near misses on runways and the failure of a computer system that grounded flights nationwide. Is that bad? NPR's David Shaper reports. Alarm bells are ringing in Congress over a couple of near collisions between airplanes in recent weeks that put hundreds of lives at risk. At New York's JFK Airport, an American Airlines passenger jet mistakenly crossed over an active runway into the path of a Delta plane that was beginning to take off. Air traffic control called for the Delta pilot to abort, and he did so safely. In Austin, Texas, one recent foggy morning, a FedEx cargo plane coming into land came within 100 feet of crashing into a Southwest passenger jet that was taking off. They'd both been cleared by an air traffic controller to use the same runway. At a Senate Commerce Committee hearing, Texas Republican Senator Ted Cruz played a video dramatization of that near collision with actual recordings of pilot communications with air traffic control. Southwest has a confirm on the road. The Southwest pilot confirms it is beginning to take off when the FedEx pilot sees it and calls for it to stop. Southwest aboard. But it cannot. FedEx is on the go. The FedEx pilot pulls up and averts disaster. 
Cruz then asked acting FAA Administrator Billy Nolan how such a close call could happen. Nolan says it's still not clear what went wrong as investigations are still underway. It is not what we would expect to have happen. But when we think about the controls, how we train both our controllers and our pilots, the system works as it's designed to avert what you say could have been a horrific outcome. The other issue flummoxing senators is the January 11th failure of the NOTAM system, which notifies pilots of potential hazards. That computer breakdown led the FAA to ground all departures nationwide for nearly two hours that morning, forcing airlines to cancel 1,300 flights and delay 11,000 more. Washington Democrat Maria Cantwell, the committee's chair, wondered how both the system and its backup could go down. To be sure, the FAA must have redundancies and not a single point where a failure can happen in a key system like we just saw. Acting Administrator Nolan says the agency has since implemented fixes and changed its procedures to prevent a repeat of such an outage. But Senator Ted Cruz pressed him on that. Will the fixes remove the risk of a similar single point of failure from knocking the system out? Is there redundancy being built into it? Or can a single screw-up ground air traffic nationwide? Nolan responded that there are redundancies and safeguards now in place, but... Could I sit here today and tell you there will never be another issue on the NOTAM system? No, sir, I cannot. What I can say is that we are making every effort to modernize and look at our procedures. Nolan noted that over the last decade plus, air travel in the U.S. has never been safer. But we do not take that for granted. Recent events remind us that we cannot and must not become complacent and must continually invest in our aviation system. To that end, Nolan is creating a safety review team of outside experts to examine the FAA systems, structure, culture, processes, and integration of safety efforts, while the agency continues its massive effort to overhaul and upgrade outdated technology. David Shaper, NPR News. This is NPR News. There's another hour of Morning Edition coming up, and later today at 11 is Radio Boston. Tiziana Deering is here to give us a preview of the show. Good morning, Tiziana. Good morning, Rupa. How are you this morning? I'm good. I mean, it's it's Friday Eve. It as... is Friday Eve. That's right. Friday Eve. I'm excited about that. It's going to be, I think, a really nice weekend. Um, but a couple days of show before then. Mm-hmm. And we have a really interesting one today. So as Black History Month approached, now, uh, on Radio Boston, we know it's really important to tell everyone's stories all year round. Right. But you do want to be thoughtful in Black History Month in particular. And we wanted to not only have conversations about history, but conversations with people who are making it now. Mm-hmm. Um, so actually, a couple of days ago, uh, Massachusetts Congresswoman Ayanna Presley came in. We sat down in Studio 3, took our time, and really had a conversation about who are you? What led you? I mean, she's broken, as she calls it, the concrete ceiling several times now is, while controversial, is making history, right, in the Boston area and Massachusetts and the country. So we had a long conversation about who is she, what motivates her work, what are her challenges, what gives her joy, and we're going to bring it to you on air today. That sounds fascinating. I'll be tuning in. Thank you, Tiziana. Thanks, Rupa. That's Radio Boston today at 11. Right now it's 7.50. 
We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Elliott Community Human Services, providing recovery-oriented care for those with behavioral health and substance needs with evidence-based treatment. ElliottCHS.org. After months of protests, Iran's government has tamped down most demonstrations. It's hard, and our government won't go easily, but we will replace them. I'm Mary Louise Kelly with reporting from Iran, where anger and desperation persist. That's on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today, starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. It'll grow cloudy today and temperatures will rise to the mid-60s. 40s tonight and we may see some showers after about 7 p.m. That will be followed by a rainy Friday morning in the low 60s. The showers should taper off by about mid-afternoon. It's 56 degrees in Boston at 751. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Asma Khalid. Bozema St. John has navigated a high-flying corporate career. A black woman who held top marketing positions at Netflix, Pepsi, and other major companies. But over the years, she has also faced immense personal tragedy. And she writes about this all in her book, The Urgent Life. It was when my husband was diagnosed with cancer that my impatience and unwillingness to wait for things to just sort of happen, you know, wanting to go do things immediately really start to take form in purpose. Her life, she told me, took on a new urgency. She went along with her husband Peter's wish to cancel their divorce. They had been separated for three years. And she decided to shelf the things that had once troubled her about their marriage. The good things were about the discovery of each other, you know, just as human beings. I think the idea of love sometimes can be so romanticized that you think it's just about the butterflies and the roses and, you know, the feelings of giddiness versus really getting to know another human being so thoroughly that you trust them, that you're vulnerable with them, that you know that they have the best intentions for you. And I think at some points during uh, my marriage, our marriage, I lost sight of that. So what ultimately did drive you apart? Well, lots of trauma, you know, some of it very searing, others very much like everybody else's marriages, you know. Um, For us, we had a really traumatic experience in losing our first daughter. Um, I developed preeclampsia about six and a half months pregnant and had to go into induced labor. And Yeah, you wrote about that. Yes, wrote about that very deeply. And, um, you know, I think that besides the grief of losing our child, um, we blamed each other, you know, for all of it. Some of it. Yes, for the loss. And the thing is that, you know, without being very self-aware of how, you know, I was holding on to decisions that he made that I felt should have been different, mm-hmm. you know, without forgiving in a situation that was completely impossible to decide between me and saving our child because preeclampsia, what happens is that your body begins to act like your, you know, the pregnancy is a foreign body and blood pressure rises and the chances of having a stroke go very, very high, you know? And um, I was angry at my body betraying me. I was angry at Peter deciding on my behalf that we should induce versus, you know, let it sort of play out. There were just so many impossible decisions in it. Um, And for us, that began a lot of what were the cracks in our marriage. You mentioned losing your first daughter, your child, when you went into labor earlier because of preeclampsia, you know, I was 
I think, really touched by the degree to which you in detail outlined how traumatic the experience then of being pregnant was even with your second child. Um, You know, I think that pregnancy can be rather traumatic for a lot of women, and it's something that we don't talk about publicly. I appreciated you discussing this here, and I was struck by why you did it, but also I can't imagine it was easy. Yeah, yeah. No, you're right. I wish we would talk about it more. You know, I I really had no idea that pregnancy could be so scary. I really didn't. Hmm. The women in my family have had lots of babies, (laughs) Um, friends who looked like they were glowing throughout their pregnancies. I just didn't hear of the challenges. And of course, now we have a much wider discussion about uh, maternal health um, and especially Black women's maternal health, Mm -hmm. you know, that um, we understand the risks. But at the time when I was going through it, I just didn't know. And I wanted to talk about it and want to write about it honestly you know, to bring people into my body, to bring them into the delivery room, Mm. to understand the trauma of understanding what was happening to me and then being somewhat voiceless in my own pregnancy, you know, not being listened to, knowing something was wrong and then essentially not being heard so that it ended in a situation that was extraordinarily traumatic for me. And I'll tell you that I'm not over it. And I think it is a discussion that we shouldn't hide from and one that we should not be ashamed of. I did carry some shame for some time, feeling like I had failed womanhood, Mm. (laughs) you know, that somehow I didn't do it right and that I shouldn't talk about it. All throughout this memoir, you spoke at length, I think, about God, about your relationship with God. Talk to me about that. (laughs) Well, I grew up in the church. Uh, My parents were both Christians. They served in the church many times. But as an adult, I had to find my own relationship with God. God is supposed to be this all-knowing being, you know, who does no wrong. But I found myself in a very complicated situation where I was praying for healing for my husband, you know, begging God to save his life. And God didn't do that. And I was angry. And I thought, how dare you? How dare you? Peter was such a devout Catholic. And I thought, God, how could you fail him? How could you let him die when he begged you for his life? And my relationship with God has changed somewhat in that I don't believe that um, there is no questioning God or being angry or any of those things. And I think for me, it's um, made God more tangible, you know, made... um, my faith that much stronger in understanding that even when I ask for whatever it is I ask for, that it is not my doing which is going to deliver it, you know, and perhaps I don't know what the best thing is. And I can't say as I sit here today that I think Peter's death was part of a good, great plan. I have questions for God at the end. Mm -hmm. I do. (laughs) I will challenge that decision. But I do appreciate the fact that in my life now, I'm much more at peace with knowing that horrible things may happen, but I will still survive and I will still thrive in spite of it. So my prayer has changed. Hmm. My prayer is no longer demanding of healing or demanding of this next job or demanding of like, put me on this path. It is not that. You know, my prayer is for peace. It is for comfort. It's for joy. 
It is the prayer that hopefully will take me through life's ups and downs and allow me to live a very full life, a satisfied life. Bozma St. John, thank you so much for taking the time to chat. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. That's Bozma St. John. Her book, The Urgent Life, is out next week. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Asma Khalid. And I'm Steve Inskeep. We'll probably see record-breaking warm temperatures today. It'll be in the low to mid-60s, 40s tonight with rain possible overnight. Right now it's 56 degrees in Boston, and we're coming up on 8 o'clock. I'm education reporter Carrie Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUH-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Russia is pummeling cities across Ukraine with a barrage of missiles targeting critical infrastructure. The U.N. plans to vote on a demand for Moscow to withdraw. It's Thursday, February 16th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, following a reporting by NPR and the Marshall Project, the Federal Bureau of Prisons is shutting down one of the deadliest prison units in America, citing a culture of abuse. Five prisoners killed, two suicides in just two years. And by the way, there was another death just this month. Also this hour, the new tool scientists are using to detect and prevent a future pandemic. A diagnostic that would pick up all coronaviruses. It's a very sensitive diagnostic. Plus fear and anger in Ohio about the health impacts from a derailed freight train that carried toxic chemicals. This is what they want to do. They want to brush us under the rug like nothing ever happened, and that's what's being done. Celtics win. Cloudy today in the 60s. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Korva Coleman. NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg is visiting Turkey today to offer condolences after last week's earthquakes. More than 39,000 people were killed there and in neighboring Syria. Terry Schultz reports Stoltenberg is also pressing Turkey's government to end its blockade on membership in NATO for Finland and Sweden. Stoltenberg says the recent earthquake in Turkey is the deadliest natural disaster on NATO territory since the alliance was founded in 1949. Stoltenberg told Foreign Minister Mevlut Cavusoglu allies are mourning with Turkey for the massive loss of life. Stoltenberg noted NATO is helping in the aftermath, thanking the thousands of emergency personnel, seismic experts and relief workers deployed to Turkey through NATO's disaster response center. Military aircraft from the Netherlands, Norway, the UK and United States are working working day and night to transport international aid and perform medical evacuations. Stoltenberg also pointed to assistance provided by Finland and Sweden, countries which Ankara is blocking from joining the alliance. For NPR News, I'm Terry Schultz in Brussels. Russian forces have launched an offensive in Ukraine, forcing Ukrainian troops to pull back. This offensive comes ahead of the first anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. U.S. defense officials say they expect to see more fighting in coming weeks. Ukraine, meanwhile, is pleading for more weapons from the West to resist Russian forces. But NPR's Tom Bowman says European countries want to see if Ukraine can push the Russians back. If they can't achieve much, you may start to see some European countries start to say, we can't keep this thing going forever. The United States may say, we're with you right to the end. But you might see some of those European countries, because of the cost of this, saying, you know what, it's really time to sit down at a negotiating table. NPR's Tom Bowman reporting. 
In Georgia, parts of a long-awaited special grand jury report will be made public today. The special grand jury investigated efforts by former President Donald Trump and his allies to overturn Georgia's 2020 election results. From member station WABE, Sam Greenglass has more. The grand jury investigation stems from a January 2021 call then-President Trump made to Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, asking him to find him votes, and grew to investigate a slate of fake electors and efforts to spread conspiracy theories about widespread voter fraud. Earlier this week, Fulton County Judge Robert McBurney ruled that most of the final report be kept secret for now, noting that the report may include recommendations for criminal charges. Fulton County District Attorney Fawnie Willis would need to ask a regular grand jury to bring any indictments. The version out today includes the intro, conclusion, and a section detailing concerns that some witnesses lied under oath. For NPR News, I'm Sam Greenglass in Atlanta. You're listening to NPR News. From WBOR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Governor Maura Healey plans to name an interim leader of the state police while searching for a permanent one. Colonel Christopher Mason will step down as head of the state police tomorrow. Governor Healey told WBUR's Radio Boston she doesn't have a timeline yet for making her decision, but it's someone who could come from outside the department. It's a big organization, and it's really important that uh, always there's integrity. Uh, the public the public trust is so, so imperative. And then uh, managerial competence, running a great department. Colonel Mason has led the state police since 2019. He took over during a police overtime scandal that ultimately led to the elimination of an entire troop barracks on the Mass Pike. PFAS, or so-called forever chemicals, are found in a lot of consumer products. They range from dental floss to raincoats to grease-resistant sandwich wrappers. Now scientists are linking the chemicals to a growing list of medical concerns. WBUR's Gabriela Emanuel has more. Often, a toxin will impact one organ or part of the body. What sets PFAS apart is just how widespread their impact can be. Linda Birnbaum is the former head of the federal government's National Toxicology Program. I'm not sure I know a tissue or an organ system where effects haven't been reported. One reason for this is because PFAS bind to proteins in the blood and can circulate throughout your body. And certain types of PFAS linger in your body for years. At this point, scientists don't know any good ways to get the chemicals out of the body. So they recommend reducing future exposure. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Gabriella Emanuel. Some local leaders in Massachusetts want state lawmakers to make remote participation in town meetings a permanent thing. Remote meetings were allowed under pandemic guidelines in 2020. The rules allowing them have been extended twice. Jeff Beckwith is the executive director of the Massachusetts Municipal Association. He wants communities to have the option permanently. We want that option to continue so that we don't move back to the old requirement of every meeting being in person in a town hall or a city hall conference room because it's harder for people to go and and see what's going on in their local government under the old rules. The rules are currently set to expire on March 31st. We're getting a new look at the wreckage of the Titanic, thanks to researchers at the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution. They released a new video of the ship on the ocean floor. Andy Bowen was an engineer on the expedition. He says Woods Hole was only able to find the wreck because of its high-tech equipment. The water is uh, near freezing temperatures, 
and probably the biggest challenge uh, is the remoteness of the location and in particular the harsh uh, environment uh, with regard to the pressure that uh, our uh, equipment is exposed to. Woods Hole researchers helped find the Titanic remains back in 1985. It's 8.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Leslie University, educating the exceptionally competent and socially conscious business leader. Learn more at leslie.edu. The Celtics topped the Detroit Pistons 127-109 to last night at the Garden. The Seas are now off for a week for the NBA All-Star break. Tonight, the Bruins visit the Nashville Predators. Clouds increasing throughout the day today. It's going to be warm with a high in the lower 60s. Rain moves in around sunset and showers are likely overnight. The low will be in the 40s. Rain throughout a good part of the day tomorrow. It'll be in the 60s again. It'll be dry but cooler for the weekend. It's 56 degrees in Boston at 8.08. WBUR supporters include BritBox, now streaming Stonehouse, starring Matthew McFadden, based on the rise and fall of British politician John Stonehouse who faked his own death. Available at BritBox.com NPR. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Asma Khalid. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Scientists think they have learned a lesson during the pandemic, a lesson about how to see the next pandemic coming. For generations, virologists have tried to find early signs of new diseases so they have the maximum time to respond. They've typically looked in animals because new viruses often come from there first. Now researchers think they've been looking in the wrong place. NPR Global Health correspondent Michaeline Duclef has been discovering this story. Hey there, Michaeline. Good morning. What's been going wrong? So for decades now, the U.S. government has spent hundreds of millions of dollars to hunt for new viruses inside animals. Scientists trap wild animals and then look for viruses inside them. That's where the SARS virus came from, right? Mm -hmm. But what scientists are figuring out is that this task is nearly impossible. Animals contain millions of different viruses, and only a tiny fraction of those will ever infect people. You know, so how do you know which one's a threat? You know, they missed the early warning signs in China with COVID. Yeah, well, if that doesn't work very well, what is the better approach and how did scientists begin to find it? So in the past few years, scientists have begun to understand something surprising, that new animal viruses are jumping into people all the time. They're called spillovers and they aren't rare at all. They've just been hidden. Hmm. And the story I'm going to tell you is about a little boy in Malaysia who had a mysterious illness and how that illness started to reveal these hidden spillovers, which is leading to a big change in how scientists search for new diseases. I want people to know you had to go a long way to get this story. So where did you find this little boy? So the little boy lives in a tiny fishing village on the island of Borneo. The village is right near the South China Sea. And to get there takes quite an effort. We have to cross over nearly a dozen rivers and take several ferries. It's here, the ferry. So the water is not rough, okay? Drive over gulches where crocodiles hide in the mud, past giant mango trees rising 40 feet in the air. The yellow, are those coconuts? Oh, yes. Finally, we reach the village and turn into a neighborhood with colorful houses, pink and yellow, all built high up on stilts. We stop at a greenhouse with a motorcycle parked out front. Oh, we're here. Oh, great. After four days of traveling, we have finally arrived. Should we put on a mask? Yeah. A woman in her 30s greets me at the door Hello. and leads me into her living room. Hello. 
She's the little boy's mom. We're calling her by her initial, In. We aren't using her full name to protect the family's privacy and any stigma there might be around the cause of her son's illness. Oh, thank you. In has six kids. Her fifth is a boy, Mohammed. She and her family gather around and tell a remarkable story about him. Oh yeah, masanya mula kami antanya pergi. Back in 2017, Mohammed was only a baby. One summer evening, he started to have a fever. Okay. And so the baby was like could not breathe. Were you afraid? Lisa, Lisa, Lisa yeah. is very concerned. Uh, in rush Mohammed to the hospital near their home, but the baby's condition worsened. So they traveled three hours to the nearest city called Cebu. Doctors quickly admitted Mohammed to the ICU. Straight to ICU. Because he was, was he getting worse? Much worse, she says. Mohammed's lungs were failing, and his blood wasn't getting enough oxygen. The breathing machine? Mohammed had pneumonia, but doctors couldn't identify the virus causing it. Surprisingly, this is actually the norm with respiratory infections. John Lignicki is a virologist at the University of Florida and one of the top virus hunters in the world. He says at any given hospital, here in the U.S. or Brazil, anywhere, if you have a respiratory infection, doctors often run a test to see the cause. But... Something a lot of people don't realize is that a most probable cause is typically generated by these tests in, in about 40% of the cases. I like to say 60% of the time. They have absolutely no idea. But at the hospital in Malaysia, where Mohammed was, one doctor wasn't satisfied with that. His name is Dr. Tek Hak To. He's a pediatrician. And he's treated thousands of children like Mohammed with severe respiratory illnesses that they can't find a cause for. And around the time he was taking care of Mohammed, he was also trying to figure out why. What's making each of these kids sick? He really wanted to know. We are interested in all these uh, infections that has been uh, making trouble to a lot of our, of our children. So he took a little white swab, like the one in a COVID test, scraped the inside of Mohammed's nose, and froze the sample. He and his team have taken samples like this for years. We are looking for infection that we don't know, essentially. If you think about it, doctors not knowing what causes an infection 60% of the time that means there are these groups of viruses out there, perhaps other new coronaviruses or flu viruses, making people sick all over the world that scientists have no clue about. They've been hidden. There are a whole bunch of viruses that we are missing. We probably have novel viruses here in North America. We're just missing them because we don't have the tools to pick them up. That's Dr. Gregory Gray. He's an infectious disease epidemiologist at the University of Texas Medical Branch in Galveston. A few years ago, he teamed up with Toe and developed a tool to find new coronaviruses inside patients. A diagnostic that would pick up all coronaviruses. It's a very sensitive diagnostic. Then he started to test Toe's patients with this new tool. They started with only about 300 patient samples, including Mohammed's. Right away, they found something. Inside Mohammed's upper respiratory tract, Gray and his team found a new coronavirus, 
one that comes from dogs. You know, it's very canine-like, primarily. At the time, scientists didn't think dog coronaviruses had the ability to infect people. Gray wondered if his team might have made a mistake. I was surprised. And, you know, you always wonder if you have some sort of problem with the lab. But then Gray and his colleagues looked to see if this dog virus had cropped up in other patients around the world. They looked in a genetic database. And Gray says what they discovered is that this family of dog viruses has jumped into people or spilled over at least four times in the past 20 years. The same virus has been found uh, far away in Haiti. Uh, and there's been evidence of other canine viruses in this group infecting people in Thailand and in the USA. That was in Arkansas, where scientists found the dog virus in people with cold-like symptoms. And here's where the story really gets crazy. Because if they were barely looking and they found this, that means these viruses... They're probably spilling over or threatening to spill over all the time. After Gray and Toe published their findings on Muhammad, other teams started reporting more animal coronaviruses inside people all over. A team in Kenya found a version of MERS coronavirus that jumps from camels into people way more easily than previously thought. And a team at the University of Florida, led by Marco Salemi, found a new coronavirus in several sick children in Haiti. He says this virus jumped from pigs into kids. The children had got fever, it got some intestinal problem, but uh, ultimately the immune system fought successfully the infection. Altogether, these studies paint a clear and striking picture of spillovers. They aren't like needles in a haystack. Spillovers are more like a rake sticking out of the side of the haystack. Once researchers start looking, they find them easily. Every time that we take a breath in, in any environment, even in our own home, we breathe in probably thousands of different viral strains. In fact, another study estimated that every year more than 60,000 SARS-like viruses jump into people in Southeast Asia alone, which means, as one scientist put it, spillovers are like snow falling across humanity. We've been listening to NPR's Michaeline Dukleff and Michaeline a couple of reactions. First, someone is choking at this moment, thinking about inhaling thousands of different virus strains. So thank you very much for ruining somebody's morning. But I understand. Amazing reporting, though, going to the other side of the world to find out what scientists are learning about how many viruses are out there, which does raise a question. Why aren't there more pandemics? Yeah. So, you know, all those viruses we're breathing in, you know, even if they do infect us, the vast majority of these spillovers don't cause much problem at all. You know, these emerging viruses usually don't make people very sick and they often don't spread very well from person to person. Mm. So that's a big reason why they've remained so hidden. But Steve, and this is really key, when a virus strain keeps jumping over and over again into people, say for decades, there's always a possibility it could mutate or change so that it could start making people really sick or even begin transmitting between people. So does this story point to a way to be more efficient in finding the viruses we need to worry about, looking at people instead of animals? Exactly. It's a way of narrowing the search, right? So looking in people with pneumonias who doctors don't know the cause, or also looking inside people who are often working with animals. Think of this. If you combine the studies I mentioned in that story, these scientists search for new viruses in only about a thousand people. 
And look what they've already found, three new coronaviruses. Can you finish the story for us, though, the story of this little boy, Mohammed? Yes, of course. You know, when I visited In's home, it was the first thing, you know, I wanted to know. How, how was Mohammed? And at one point, a little boy came out of the bedroom wearing a Cookie Monster t-shirt. And In says, that's Mohammed. Mm. You know, he took nearly two years to recover from the illness he had. He coughed for several years and he's always been small for his age, but now he's five years old and he's healthy and he's in kindergarten. NPR Global Health correspondent Michaeline Duclef has the latest installment of an NPR series called Hidden Viruses. Thanks so much. Thank you, Steve. This is NPR News. I'm Rupa Shinoy. Coming up on Morning Edition, the story of a couple in Turkey who were rescued after being trapped in the remains of their collapsed apartment building. And the Federal Bureau of Prisons says it's shutting down a notorious prison unit because of a culture of abuse exposed by reporting from NPR and the Marshall Project. It's 820. Hey, it's A. Martinez from Morning Edition. Waking up your body every morning is hard enough, so why not make waking up your mind easier? Every morning, we bring you the latest news and headlines, plus a little something to make you smile, think, maybe even laugh, so you can get those neurons fired up for the day ahead. So wake up your brain with us. Listen to Morning Edition from NPR News every weekday. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Vertex, working for people with sickle cell and genetic kidney diseases, cystic fibrosis, and more. Careers in research and cell and genetic therapies at vrtx.com. Increasing clouds today with a high near 64. The National Weather Service says temperatures in both Boston and Providence will probably surpass their record highs of 60 degrees set in 1910. Cloudy tonight with a low around 48. There's a chance of rain in the late evening. Showers likely Friday morning into the early afternoon, then cloudy with a high near 62. It's 56 degrees in Boston at 821. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Progressive Insurance, with its Name Your Price tool, a way to see coverage options based on a driver's budget. Learn more at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation, using research and evidence to develop solutions that help families and communities create a brighter future for young people. More information is available at AECF.org. And from Mattress Firm, whether browsing online or in one of their stores, Mattress Firm is committed to providing personalized service and advice to help people choose the right mattress for their needs. Learn more at mattressfirm.com. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Asma Khalid. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. The earthquake that struck Turkey and Syria came when many people were asleep. That helps to explain why almost 40,000 people are reported dead. NPR's Daniel Estrin met a man who survived. Ali Kafadenk was sleeping in bed with his wife Merve when their six-story apartment building started to shake. We met him in the street outside a mountain of rubble. He says his wife poked him and woke him up, saying there was an earthquake. He said, no, it'll pass. Then two opposite walls caved in, making sort of a concrete tent over their bed. 
It was so low they couldn't sit up. He spoke to my interpreter. We were stuck under um, the walls some, with, with the shape of like an upside-down V, and that's what protected us. What were you thinking when you were stuck in that small space? We thought that we would die. That was the only option we thought. Uh, we thought like any minute there's going to be something uh, that's going to come crashing down on our heads. This is one way several people did survive the earthquake, a Turkish emergency response team told us. A wall tipping onto something and leaving a small triangle void for someone to survive in. The cold weather also helped. Survivors didn't sweat as much, which delayed dehydration. Kafadenk and his wife Merve were only there an hour and a half. But it was terrifying and claustrophobic. He threw himself over his wife to protect her. We were saying to each other that we came from God, we will go back to God. Then he heard his building sink and the earth move. It was a sound that I've never heard before. It feels like it's a supernatural sound. Um, it was something like a really strong and loud and low uh, thunder. It's something like the sound that we hear in the sci-fi movies. The building was still shifting and crumbling. Floors above them fell into the street. Somehow, there was an opening. It was too dusty to see. He felt it, snowy cold air. And that is when he heard his neighbors' screams. My baby's stuck here. My leg is stuck there. My mom is under here. And my dad's over there. Kafedink and his wife also shouted. And that is when someone pulled them out. Someone else gave him a pair of shoes. Now, Kafedenk is staying with family out of town. He's back here for the first time since the earthquake. He says, seeing it, it feels like I'm living through all of it again. I'm feeling fear, sadness, and loss. He says only two other people in the building survived out of dozens. He and his wife are school teachers, and they can't reach their colleagues. He thinks they've died. One of the few things he could recover from the building were letters of appreciation from his students. He wonders how many of them survived. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Islaya, Turkey. The Special Management Unit at the Thompson Penitentiary in Illinois is one of the deadliest prison units in America. Which we know because of reporting by NPR in conjunction with the Marshall Project. Now, because of those dangerous conditions, the Federal Bureau of Prisons is shutting this facility down. NPR investigative correspondent Joseph Shapiro helped uncover what was happening at Thompson, and he's here with us now. Good morning, Joe. Good morning, Asma. So, Joe, remind us what your reporting discovered. Well, we found that Thompson, which is the newest federal prison, had quickly become, as you said, one of the deadliest. Five prisoners killed, two suicides in just two years. And by the way, there was another death just this month. Oh, wow. And our reporting focused on the cause of this violence, which was a culture of abuse by staff that the Bureau of Prisons says is the reason that it's now shutting down this unit. And this is reporting I did with Christy Thompson of the Marshall Project, a key moment to our reporting came when a prisoner named Demetrius Hill sent us a note that he'd witnessed one prisoner attacking and killing another. And oh that the God. attacker, he'd warned the guards he was going to kill his cellmate, a small man named Bobby Everson, who was known as Loopy. And 
even on the night of the killing, he said he was about to kill Loopy. And our eyewitness, Demetrius Hill, says the corrections officer said, go ahead, just do it. And here's tape from Hill when we got to speak to him from prison. To force this kid in the cell with this madman, they knew the result. He had just beaten another prisoner who had been in the cell with him. I'm talking about maybe two weeks, maybe two weeks prior, another prisoner, I don't know his name, and he was beating that inmate for days on end. Days on end, he was beating that prisoner. Finally, they took him out and stuffed Loopy in it. Wow, a very powerful story, Joe. I mean, after all of your reporting, there were calls for investigations from Illinois Senators Dick Durbin and Tammy Duckworth, as well as human rights and religious groups. Where did all that go? Well, the inspector general for the U.S. Department of Justice opened an investigation, and so did the Federal Bureau of Prisons. And now the BOP says it found persistent problems with what it called institutional culture and compliance with BOP policies. In other words, problems that were so deep, so rotten that they they couldn't even be fixed. There's a new director at the federal prison agency, Colette Peters, and this is one of her first big moves. So what happens next, Joe? I mean, my understanding from your reporting is that this unit was supposed to be the place uh, within the prison system that housed some of its most dangerous inmates. So where do they go? That's right, Asma. The special management unit was set up to separate men who created serious problems at other prisons. They were leaders of prison gangs. They were violent. Although in our reporting, we talked to men who didn't seem to fit that description. Maybe they had untreated mental illness. The mother of one man killed at Thompson said he'd ended up there because he'd filed complaints against guards at another prison after they'd forced him into a fight with members of a white supremacist gang. It's been seven years since Christy Thompson and I wrote our first stories on these federal special management units. And first, we reported on abuse at the unit at Lewisburg, Pennsylvania. And shortly after that, Lewisburg was shut down. We followed up to see what happened to the men who were moved from Lewisburg to Thompson. And we'll keep watching. NPR investigative correspondent Joseph Shapiro, thank you very much. You're so welcome. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on Morning Edition, at a meeting yesterday, residents who lived near the site of a train derailment in Ohio voiced anger about their possible exposure to toxic chemicals. It's 829. Follow the news all day with WBUR no matter where you go. We're at 90.9 on the radio, WBUR.org online, and on the WBUR mobile app on your phone. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Peabody Essex Museum, presenting Spirits, Saring Sherpa, with Robert Beer. On view now. Plan your visit at PEM.org. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. NATO's Secretary General is in Turkey today to offer condolences and support following last week's deadly earthquake. It killed more than 39,000 people in southeastern Turkey and northern Syria. This is the deadliest natural disaster on Alliance territory since the foundation of NATO. Jens Stoltenberg was speaking in Ankara. Ukraine is accusing Russia of sabotaging a grain export deal brokered by Turkey and the U.N. last year. 
As NPR's Joanna Kakissis reports, that agreement allows container ships filled with grain to sail from Black Sea ports amid Russia's invasion. In a statement, three ministers representing the Ukrainian government accuse Russia of hindering Ukrainian grain exports and, quote, weaponizing food. Russia says the deal does not benefit it because the West is imposing hidden sanctions. Container ships with both Ukrainian and Russian food products have been leaving the Black Sea and stopping in Turkey's Bosphorus Strait for inspections. Ukraine is accusing Russia of delaying these inspections and says more than 140 container ships are currently waiting in the Bosporus. Ukraine provides most of the world's grain. Ukrainian leaders say global food security is threatened without the deal, which expires on March 19th. Joanna Kikissis, NPR News, Kiev. This is NPR News. The White House says President Biden will undergo a routine physical today at Walter Reed National Medical Center outside Washington. Biden is 80 years old and the oldest president in the nation's history. He's expected to run for re-election in 2024. The Justice Department will not bring federal charges against Republican Congressman Matt Gates of Florida. That's according to the lawmakers' attorneys. NPR's Ryan Lucas says Gates had been under investigation for possible sex trafficking and obstruction of justice. Gates attorneys Mark Mukasey and Isabel Kirshner say the Justice Department has informed them that investigators have wrapped up their probe into allegations of sex trafficking and obstruction of justice, and that the department, they say, has determined not to bring any charges against Gates. The Justice Department declined to comment. Federal investigators were examining whether Gates violated federal sex trafficking laws and whether he had had a relationship with an underage girl. Gates has always maintained he did nothing wrong. Ford is suspending production of its electric pickup truck, the F-150 Lightning, after a vehicle battery caught fire during a quality check. The Detroit automaker says it's also halting shipments of those that have already rolled off the assembly line. Ford says production of the Lightning at its plant in Dearborn, Michigan, is on hold until at least the end of next week. Dow futures are down 172 points. I'm Dave Mattingly in Washington. From WBWAR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. The city of Cambridge is renewing plans to equip its police officers with body cameras. The decision follows the fatal shooting of 20-year-old Arif Saeed Faisal by Cambridge police last month. City leaders plan to fast-track implementation of the cameras. They say it's part of a larger plan to review the department's training policies and practices. Insurance coverage gaps and increased demand for specialized care are among the reasons for a surge in people waiting for nursing home beds in the state. That's according to Adam Del Molino. He's the director of virtual care and clinical affairs at the Massachusetts Health and Hospital Health and Hospital Association. He says the current shortage of healthcare workers is largely to blame. I think that's probably the single biggest piece right now is we have to be able to attract and retain staff across the healthcare sector workforce, because that expands capacity in the system. A recent MHA survey found nearly 900 patients in Massachusetts were waiting for transfers to long-term care facilities last month. Congresswoman Ayanna Presley is pushing to close the racial wealth gap. To do that, she's reintroducing a bill that sets up a national baby bond program. The program would put $1,000 into an account for anyone born after this year. 
more money would be put into the account depending on a family's income. It would earn interest and be available when the child turns 18. To learn more, tune in today to Radio Boston when Presley will be talking with Tiziana Deering. That's at 11. Right now, it's 834. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com. The Celtics ended the first half of their season with a win last night. They topped the Detroit Pistons 127-109. to The Bruins will be on the road tonight to play the Nashville Predators. Clouds will move in throughout the day today as temperatures rise to a high in the mid-60s. Tonight we fall back into the 40s. Under cloudy skies that may give way to rain in the late evening. Friday starts with showers, then it'll be cloudy with a high in the low 60s. Right now it's 57 degrees in Boston at 835. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline the candidate search process. Businesses attract, screen, and interview candidates all from the employer dashboard. More at Indeed.com slash NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Z-Quil Pure Z's Gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Asma Khalid. Some residents of East Palestine, Ohio, contend that a chemical spill is making them sick. Residents are back at home two weeks after that highly publicized train wreck. The Norfolk Southern train carried hazardous materials. The railroad says it's going to clean up that spill, and federal authorities told people who evacuated that it was safe to return, but a different view emerged at a community meeting last night. Idea Stream Public Media's Abigail Botar attended that meeting. And, and Abigail, I just want to begin by asking you to describe what the atmosphere was like. It was pretty contentious. A lot of people showed up. It was a couple hundred residents from the surrounding areas. Uh, they were angry and frustrated with the lack of information they were getting. Um, and the railroad wasn't in attendance at this meeting last night. Mm. Candace DeZanzo evacuated the area with her children uh, after, shortly after the derailment, but returned when the evacuation order was lifted. Now she's second-guessing that decision. We all have red rashes, loose stool, congestion, uh, eyes burning, everything smells. Uh, I have, I've have been having terrible headaches. And she wasn't the only one. Many residents have been complaining about fumes around town and how they're impacting their health, particularly near the site of the derailment and a local creek. So how is the EPA responding to these complaints? What are they saying? The EPA, both the U.S. and the Ohio agencies, both reiterated that the air and the water are both safe in East Palestine and that they're going to continue to monitor it. An official with the EPA at the meeting last night said they are also smelling the fumes residents were complaining about. They said they know the chemical that's causing it, but say they're not detecting levels high enough that could actually impact human health. Got it. And, and how are people, how are residents there responding to this information? I would say they're just not satisfied with that answer. It's not matching up with what their lived experience is in knowing people or actually experiencing these symptoms themselves. Mm -hmm. And they don't know what the actual impact of these chemicals are going to have on their health really now and what's going to happen in the future. And a lot of residents are also saying that they feel like they're not getting enough attention from government agencies and officials. Ohio Governor Mike DeWine has been to East Palestine a few times in the past couple of weeks, but residents like Kirsten Miller say that's not enough. Would DeWine want his family to go live on the tracks where my family lives? Would he feel safe? 
No, but instead of entering us into a state of emergency and calling in FEMA, this is what they want to do. They want to brush us under the rug like nothing ever happened, and that's what's being done. And while the cause of the accident is still under investigation, residents say there needs to be more accountability from Norfolk Southern. Norfolk Southern, the, the uh, railroad operator there, you mentioned earlier that officials from Norfolk Southern were not in attendance at the meeting. How are they responding to what residents are saying? They say they will continue to respond to community concerns despite the fact that they weren't at the meeting. Um, a few hours before the meeting, Norfolk Southern released a statement saying representatives would not be in attendance despite that being the plan. They said this was, quote, due to a growing physical threat to employees and members of the community. Um, I have not been able to substantiate any of those claims with community members or the mayor. Um, but Norfolk Southern has been reimbursing people for costs incurred due to the evacuation. They also recently set up a charitable fund to support the community, but residents were really angry that they weren't at the meeting last night and that they couldn't bring their concerns directly to Norfolk Southern. Already, several people and business owners have filed class action lawsuits against Norfolk Southern. That's IdeaStream Public Media's Abigail Botar, who's been covering the train derailment in East Palestine, Ohio. Thanks very much for your reporting, Abigail. You're welcome. Okay, so we heard the reassurances of the EPA that people can smell chemicals, but it's not enough to be dangerous. We've heard the concerns of people in the community who say they're feeling sick. Now let's get an evaluation from Peter DiCarlo, an associate professor of environmental health and engineering at Johns Hopkins University. Welcome to the program, sir. Thank you for having me. What if you were a resident of East Palestine, Ohio, would you feel safe going back home? Honestly, with, with the data that I've seen on the EPA response site, um, the answer is no. And there's a couple of reasons for that. Um, first off, I have two small children, and I'd be especially concerned for their health. Um, and secondly, the, the air monitoring in the area uh, just doesn't really, in the air sampling as well, doesn't really um, give me the information I need to understand whether or not there's still emissions from the site. And clearly there are if people are still smelling fumes. Okay, this is getting probably more technical than we can describe on the radio, but the essence of what I understand the EPA to be telling me as a layman is that there may be enough for you to smell, but there's not enough chemicals in the air, not enough concentration of chemicals to harm you. Are you telling me you don't see the same thing when you look at the same data? So the EPA seems to be relying on, on air monitoring, and they make a distinction between air monitoring and air sampling. In air monitoring, they're walking around with these handheld devices, which are really not designed to make the appropriate measurements. They don't, they're not specific to the chemicals that are of concern. Um, they kind of measure them all as a one class, and they just do not have the appropriate sensitivity to give you the accurate idea of a concentration. You're telling me that they're not giving you enough information to be assured. Correct. Absolutely. Yeah. And they're also doing air sampling, which means they draw air into a stainless steel container. They take that container back to the lab. And that type of measurement can be done with very accurate assessment of what chemicals are present and at what concentrations. The problem with that is they're not doing it, or that at least the data is not being posted, um, at areas at the accident site and downwind of the accident site. And that's the, those are the two key places that tell me what chemicals may be still being emitted from the site and what the appropriate risks are. And without that information, we really just can't assess the risk appropriately. Let's uh, look at the other bits of evidence that we have and be frank about it. We have anecdotal information from people who say, I feel sick. And I don't mean to dismiss it at all by saying that it's anecdotal. But of course, we know that people feel sick all the time. They may feel sick whether there are chemicals in the air or not. But we have this coincidence, possibly, or real connection between 
chemical smells in the air, and people who feel sick. Do the symptoms you heard described sound like something that would happen to somebody who has some kind of chemical poisoning? I don't know if I would call it poisoning, but certainly a sensitivity to that chemical. And, and I think the symptoms that people are describing are also consistent with what we understand um, the responses for these types of chemicals can be. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think that these are very real uh, experiences from the people who are living and, and have moved back to the area. So uh, if the EPA is listening this morning, and I bet somebody is, they called you up and said, okay, we heard your complaint. What would you have me do? How would you answer them? I would tell them I think the most important thing from my perspective, and, and this is kind of what I do for a living is measure chemicals in the air, is, is I, will, I would like to see a set of three measurements done repeatedly until they can show that there are no more emissions from the site. And, and one of those measurements should be upwind, so we know the air that's going towards the accident site. One measurement should be done at the, accu- at the measurement site, or at the accident site. Mm-hmm. And one measurement should be done downwind of the accident site. And if you have those series of three measurements, you know what chemicals are getting emitted at the accident site, if there are still chemicals being emitted, and what those concentrations look like downwind. Because on any given day, the wind could be coming from any direction. Peter DiCarlo of Johns Hopkins University, thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. This is NPR News. Coming up on Morning Edition, what it's like to be in the driver's seat of a dog sled amidst a cold Minnesota winter. In your forecast, clouds move in throughout the day today. We'll have temperatures in the low to mid-60s, cloudy and upper 40s tonight, a chance of rain in the late evening. Friday morning, more rain and low 60s. It's 57 degrees in Boston at 844. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Road Scholar creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org slash learning. Now in business news, Milford-based Waters Corp. says it's acquiring a California medical company for nearly $1.5 billion. Waters says buying Wyatt Technology will allow it to accelerate the gene and cell and gene therapies it's developing. The Massachusetts Restaurant Association wants the state to extend authorization for outdoor dining past the current March 31st deadline. The Boston Herald reports if it lapses, restaurants in places without regulations for outdoor dining would need to get both state and municipal approval to serve outdoors. It's 845. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the ICA. Warm up with family fun this season interactive art and reading spaces, plus an exhibition inspired by childhood, ICABoston.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Asma Khalid. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. There has not been very much snow at all here in Washington, D.C. this winter. But some parts of this country have had enough snow for dog sledding, which was a lifelong ambition for Minnesota Public Radio's Catherine Richard. Here's her report. Here's the first thing you need to know about dog sledding. Golden rule of dog sledding, don't let go of the sled. Repeat that, Catherine. (laughs) Don't Don't let go of the sled. (laughs) 
I'm heading out with Dawn Lanning, owner of HHH Ranch. She's a dog sledding expert near Rochester, Minnesota, and my guide for the day. I'd like to tell you, if you lose the sled, the dogs will say, oh no, we lost them, and they'll sit down and wait for you. Does it sound like they're going to sit and wait for you, right? So hang on to the sled. And as if on cue, Clyde, one of 10 dogs Lanning has for our expedition, slips out of his harness and bolts into the woods. Uh-oh. Clyde sheepishly comes back as soon as Dawn and her son Sean call for him. Did you tell them to do that? That was a, <laughs> that was a perfect illustration. <laughs> Clyde and I, we have something in common. We both love our jobs. If it's not clear already, Clyde and his colleagues cannot wait to get out on this dog sledding trail. And neither can I. Since moving to Minnesota in 2009, I've always wanted to try this sport. But before we can hit the trail, Lanning wants to introduce me to the rest of the crew, like Rivet. Do you want to smell me? Come here, Rivet. Hi. You might smell my cats on me. That's a little weird, huh? Rivet is a good-looking dog. Blonde hair, part husky, part greyhound, giving him those long legs he needs to take big strides. Friendly, too. And his bloodline is special. He's related to dogs used by Lance Mackey. He's an Iditarod legend. He actually won four Iditarods in a row. Rivet is the leader of one of today's teams, a quality not all dogs have. That's always good to have that confident dog for a lead dog that'll listen to you and isn't afraid to run up front. You know, it's pretty easy to chase a tail. Lanning says forming teams from the 40 dogs she cares for is one of the best parts of the job. I just love it when they all come together as a team. It's finally time to race. I've learned how to get on and off the sled properly. I've learned how and when to break. I've learned that my many years of downhill skiing will pay off when I have to lean into those turns. And I've learned that you don't say mush. That's just something Hollywood made up. For this first round, I'm going to be the passenger while Lanning guides the dogs. Woo! Oh my god, that was so fast! Whoa! Whoa, it's a little bumpy. <laughs> Being in the passenger seat so low to the ground, I'm getting sprayed with snow as the dogs kick it back. And from down here, this ride feels really fast. It's like you're part of the pack. One of the things I'm struck by is how quickly things quiet down. Those howling, impatient dogs from a few minutes ago are silent now, laser-focused on their run. It's really awesome just to watch all of their legs kind of running in sync with each other, too. It's really cool from this perspective down here. After about 10 minutes... Okay, you want to try driving? I think so. Okay, oh, my gosh. Don and I carefully swap spots driving the sled, making sure one of us always has a foot on the brake. What a beautiful sport. What a way to enjoy the cold with a group of beautiful animals doing what they love. It's all joy. Just don't let go of the sled. For NPR News, I'm Katherine Richard near Rochester, Minnesota. Stop sledding. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Asma Khalid. This is 90.9 WPUR. Coming up, the opportunities that may come with new standards for federally funded electric vehicle chargers. And in our next hour, the lasting mystery over famous Chilean poet Pablo Neruda's death. Coming up at noon today is Here and Now, and Robin Young is here to tell us what's on the show today. Hi there, Robin. Hi there to you. And I bet a lot of our listeners don't know, uh, one of the stories we're going to cover is that Massachusetts is the only state in the country that has a domestic abuse hotline 
for abusers. This is for, it's primarily men, but women call as well. And it's a, a kind of patterned after uh, abuse lines in, um, you know, Britain and Colombia, where they get thousands of calls a year. That's fascinating. Yeah, here in Massachusetts, there are hundreds more than they expected. It's just started. And the average phone call is an hour long. Mm-hmm. And people call and say, I don't want to do this. I'm afraid I'm going to do this. And they feel that they've actually, you know, helped people not take the action against their partner. It's really quite amazing. So we're going to hear from somebody who who persons the hotline, you know, takes those calls, talks people off that ledge, and uh, one of the co-creators, why this is necessary and why states across this country are calling Massachusetts saying we want one as well. All right, I'm wondering about incriminating yourself and well, following up on we'll reporting. We'll talk about that too, yep, yeah, the anonymity. And then, then also we're going to some, have some beautiful music. Uh, this is, um, okay, let me see if I get this right, Monastatos, who's a black character in uh, Magic Flute. And we're going to be talking to Terrence McKnight, well-known broadcaster in New York, who's starting a podcast to learn more about black characters in opera and how they may disseminate some really uh, uh, not healthy images. And so we're going to talk about that and hear beautiful music at noon. It does sound beautiful. Thank you, Robin. That's here and now. Today at noon, it's 8.51. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Into the Woods, coming to Boston direct from Broadway and with its Broadway stars to boot, two weeks only beginning March 21st. Tickets at emersoncolonialtheater.com. I'm Tiziana Deering. Today on Radio Boston, a conversation with Congresswoman Ayanna Presley. I received an education, a tutelage early on, that to be black and to be a woman is the dichotomy of being hyper-visible and invisible at the same time. What drives her and what's giving her joy? That's Radio Boston today at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The U.S. and China swap sanctions. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Affinity, helping investors navigate the relationship economy with the CRM built for private capital markets. Affinity.co slash marketplace. From Marketplace, I'm Sabri Beneshore in for David Brancaccio. In a sanctions tit-for-tat between the U.S. and China, it was China's turn this morning. It put Lockheed Martin and a unit of Raytheon on what it calls its unreliable entity list. In the U.S., the Commerce Department on Friday added five Chinese firms and a research institute to its entity list. Here's Marketplace's Nova Safo. China says it's sanctioning Lockheed Martin and Raytheon Missiles and Defense because they provide weapons to Taiwan. They, in fact, do. The U.S. is Taiwan's main source of military equipment. This is not new. What is new is the latest round of U.S. sanctions on Chinese firms, five of them which are suspected of supporting China's military and aerospace programs, or more specifically, China's alleged surveillance balloon program. A Chinese research institute was also added to the U.S. list on Friday. As for Raytheon's missiles and defense unit and Lockheed Martin, China says they're now barred from importing goods into China or making new investments there. It's not clear what impact, if any, this will have on either company. They have so far not commented. I'm Novasafo for Marketplace. Until this week, there were no federal standards for electric vehicle chargers in the U.S., and it shows. Existing chargers have different connections, different power levels, different payment methods. 
Now, the White House has unveiled new national standards for federally funded EV chargers. The idea is to make it easy for drivers to find a charger without even thinking about it. More convenient for EV drivers, yes, but also a business opportunity. Here's Marketplace's Stephanie Hughes. Standards create certainty, and investors like certainty. Jayco is managing director of the Lightsmith Group, a climate-focused private equity firm. The next five to ten years now, the trajectory has become a lot clearer. Another certainty, public funds. The infrastructure law invests $7.5 billion in EV charging. That's why we're seeing companies like Tesla make a portion of electric chargers open to all EVs by the end of next year. And that? Creates a much larger landscape and shows that people are willing to play nice with others. It also makes good business sense to be able to profit from charging all electric cars, not just Tesla's. Another business opportunity lies in strategizing where new electric chargers should be. Jessica Transick is a professor at the Institute for Data, Systems, and Society at MIT. You can pinpoint certain locations where people stop, you know, where they stop for certain amounts of time. The Biden administration wants a network of 500,000 public EV chargers across the country by 2030. That's about four times the current number. I'm Stephanie Hughes for Marketplace. All right, let's do the numbers. The FTSE in London is down less than a tenth of a percent. Dow, S&P, and NASDAQ futures are also all down in the six-tenths to one and one-tenth percent range, with the Dow future down 202 points. The yield on the 10-year Treasury is 3.841%. The founder of Reddit group Wall Street Bets, that's the forum that launched the meme stock frenzy, is suing Reddit for banning him. He had tried to trademark Wall Street Bets in March of 2020 and was kicked off a month later allegedly trying to monetize a Reddit community. Reddit says the lawsuit is frivolous. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Fidelity. A dedicated Fidelity advisor can help create a wealth plan for a full financial picture. More at fidelity.com slash wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. And by Paychex, where HR, insurance, benefits, and payroll integrate into one platform. Whether two or 2,000 employees, Paychex can help make HR simple for businesses and employees. In June of 2019, the average price of a dozen grade-A eggs was $1.20. This past January, the average price was $4.80. And I can tell you, in New York, you can find them for much more than that. They've started to come down at the wholesale level, though it may take a while for that to make its way to consumers. The main culprit, but not the only one, in the price surge was bird flu. 58 million birds on U.S. farms have either been infected or culled to prevent spread. For today's Economic Pulse, we check in with an egg farmer navigating business amid all these headwinds. Joining us now is Sam Krause. He's co-CEO of MPS Egg Farms based in northern Indiana. Good morning. Good morning. So egg prices have been moving around so much. What's going on there? You know, the biggest impacts on egg prices have been bird flu this year, in addition to a number of other inflationary pressures that egg farmers like industries all throughout the economy have been feeling. What's brought them back down? It's a combination of factors. Eggs are a pure commodity, and they're driven almost entirely by supply and demand. So through the holiday season, we saw demand get very high as people are doing more hosting and baking. And since then, demand has softened somewhat. At the same time, egg producers have been repopulating flocks all throughout bird flu and been able to increase supply so that we can keep eggs coming. And the two of those in combination have served to bring the wholesale price of eggs down. So far, you have managed to avoid 
being directly affected by the most recent bird flu outbreak. How did you do that? We have, and we're extremely thankful for that. MPS learned a lot after the 2015 outbreak of bird flu on the ways that we can implement what we call biosecurity, which is in very short, keeping the outside out and making sure any potential pathogens that are out there aren't getting exposed to our hens. What do biosecurity measures look like at an egg farm? Biosecurity looks like a lot of different things. It starts as soon as vehicles enter our farms. We have truck washes that wash and disinfect every vehicle that comes onto the farm. Everybody who comes on the farm then has to enter through a locker room where they either put on a suit or change into a uniform that just stays on the farm so that you know anything from the outside stays out and everything that needs to be on the farm with the birds stays in. At the same time, anybody who goes outside needs to put on new shoe covers to prevent keeping anything outside out. Eggs are one of those things that the people eat them in good times and in bad. But I wonder if you have to predict anything about the economy this year in estimating how you do business. You know, eggs are an extremely resilient food, I think. You know, there aren't many replacements. And no matter what the price is, they are a great, affordable source of protein for people. Eggs have been remarkably, you know, economically resilient and had good demand in good economic times and in bad. Sam Kraus is co-CEO of MPS Egg Farms. Thanks so much. Thank you. In New York, I'm Sabri Beneshore with the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media. This is 90.9 WBUR. We'll probably see record-breaking warm temperatures today. It'll be in the low to mid-60s, 40 tonight, 40s tonight, and rain possible overnight. We're coming up on 9 o'clock, and the BBC is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. And the Boston Philharmonic performing Beethoven's Ninth Symphony with conductor Benjamin Zander at Symphony Hall, February 24th, bostonphil.org. After months of protests, Iran's government has tamped down most demonstrations. It's hard, and our government won't go easily, but we will replace them. I'm Mary Louise Kelly with reporting from Iran, where anger and desperation persist. That's on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today, starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. I'm Chief Content Officer Victor Hernandez. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.